Good afternoon and happy Sabbath, family. I sent my notes to Manuel Itura for a translation uh, last night, and this morning he said, you know, it reminded me of the message that Mr. Franks gave uh, a month ago, and there's no greater fear as a speaker to hear the president of the church has already covered your topic. But I went back and, and uh, watched some of that message, and thankfully Mr. Franks only spent a minute on what I want to spend 45 minutes on today, so... We're going to zoom in a little closer, because today I want to focus on a single verse in the book of Jude. But first, we need to set the scene with some context, because uh, when, I, when I gave this in Sherman, I mentioned that we don't go to the book of very Jude, we don't go to the book of very Jude, we don't go to the book of Jude very often, uh, but that's not true anymore because I think you guys went to it last month. But as a general rule, it's not a book we find ourselves turning to very often, I think, Um, In the original Greek, it turns out it's only 461 words long, making it the fifth shortest book of the Bible. So that that plays a part in it. But I think we also find that it's not a particularly encouraging or uplifting book either. And there's a reason for that. Mr. Franks went into some of this. As as the gospel began to spread and the early church began to grow, there were these new philosophical and spiritual ideas that began working their way into the church. These ideas started mixing with church doctrine and gradually warping and corrupting the core message of the gospel. Now, when Jude wrote his letter, church members were beginning to be seriously affected by some of these ideas. He's pretty clear from the outset that this this is not a letter that he wanted to write. It was a letter that he had to write. In verse 3, he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to all the saints. He wanted to write to them about the salvation that we're all looking forward to as Christians, but instead he found it necessary to urge them to contend earnestly for the foundational principles of the Christian faith. Now, this is stronger language than it looks like in English. He's essentially saying that he felt he had no choice but to write this letter, that the brethren needed to contend, to struggle, to wrestle for the faith that had been delivered to them. Why? He says, for certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Bible commentaries will describe these ungodly men with some fancy-sounding words. They'll call them protonostics, libertines, antinomians, and we don't have time to dig into each of those ideologies today, but the context we have in the book of Jude itself is enough to understand the kind of person that Jude was writing about. These were men who were abusing the grace that we've been given through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They either believed that God no longer held Christians to any kind of moral standard, or else they believed that their sins gave God an extra opportunity to show grace. And that's the kind of train of thought that Paul shot down in Romans when he said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not, which means may it never be. And so Jude felt compelled to write to the church because these immoral, ungodly, lecherous human beings are peddling their twisted version of Christianity. Jude tells the church, no, this is not the faith that God delivered to us, and if you don't fight for that faith, these men are going to trample all over it. And that's just the first few verses of Jude. In verse 12, Jude says, these are spots, and the Greek there for spots isn't just a stain, it means a hidden reef, something that's lurking below the surface, waiting to destroy entire ships. He says, these are spots in your love feast. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, 
carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. No one had to ask how Jude really felt about these men and their view of religion. In verse 16, he calls them grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But what really fascinates me about this epistle, and the verse that I want to focus on, is in verse 11. Let's start in verse 10 for context. Jude says, But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. And then he says, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. I've, I've wondered about that verse for years. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Why those three men? The Bible is filled with dozens of rogues and villains. What about Ahab or Sennacherib or Nebuchadnezzar or King Saul or Haman? Did you just reach into a jar of rotten Bible characters and run with the first three that he pulled out? I don't think so. He's very intentional in his choice of words here. There's a progression. There's an order to this. They have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam. They have perished in the rebellion of Korah. They have gone. They have run. They have perished. The way, the error, the rebellion. And when we look at the Greek, there's an added layer of depth here. Uh, the way of Cain, and it's probably not surprising, but the way here refers to a road, a path, a journey. The way of Cain is a lifestyle, a path that we can choose to travel. Now, run greedily is interesting, too, because the verb here is actually a word that refers to pouring out water. Uh, they have poured themselves out in the error of Balaam without, without restraint. An error is interesting as well, because in English, we might talk about an error the way we talk about, you know, a mistake. But this isn't talking about, you know, the whoopsie of Balaam. This is talking, the Greek word here deals with wandering or straying and implies the delusion or deception that results from it. Jude is saying that they have poured themselves out into deception or delusion for the sake of gaining something. The English Standard Version says that they've abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, which is, I think, a good translation of that. And when they talk, uh, when Jude talks about the rebellion of Korah, the word there literally means the speaking against. The King James Version, if you have that, will say the gainsaying of Korah, which is a word we don't really use anymore, but it highlights the fact that there's a lot more involved in rebellion than just the act itself. It's, it's a campaign. There are a lot of words moving behind the scenes before the action ever really happens. So that's sort of a high-level overview of this phrase. The way of Cain, the error of Balaam for profit, the rebellion of Korah it still leaves us with a lot of questions. And I think the best way to explore these questions is to look at the stories of the three men and see what lessons we can learn from their lives. Now, I don't think any of us in this room here are antinomians or libertines or Gnostics. I seriously doubt that any of us are turning the grace of God into lewdness or denying the power of God the Father in Jesus Christ. But what Jude gives us here is a roadmap. It's a path that any one of us could choose to travel if we're not careful. It begins with the way of Cain. It pours us out into the error of Balaam and rushes us headlong into the rebellion of Korah. 
So it's worth taking some time to understand this progression so that we can steer clear of it. So for each of these stories, I want to focus on two things. I want to focus on what exactly the problem was that Jude was highlighting, and then I want to look at what template we can follow instead. So let's start with Cain. We'll go back to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Now, the story of Cain is not some obscure story in the Bible. You're probably pretty familiar with it, but let's do a quick recap. Let's highlight some of the important verses along the way. So it's a recap, starting in Genesis 4. We see that Adam and Eve have two kids. They have Cain the firstborn and the younger brother Abel. Cain is a farmer. Abel tends sheep. The time came for both of them to make an offering. It's really important to note here before we go any further that we don't know what the rules for offerings were at this point in time. Uh, Jerusalem doesn't exist. The Levitical priesthood doesn't exist. The tabernacle doesn't exist. Humanity is literally fresh out of the garden. And the Bible doesn't tell us what kind of rules God had in place for sacrifices and offerings. But we do know that there were rules. So in verse 3, we see that Cain brings God an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brings an offering of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. What happens next? It says, The Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Why? Should Cain have brought sheep instead? Should he have brought the first fruits of the ground instead of just the fruits? We don't know. All we know is that God didn't respect Cain or his offering. And that's an important clue. It wasn't just the offering that was the problem. It was Cain, too. So what happens next in the story? Cain gets angry. He gets real angry. And God comes to talk to him, and he says something very important in verse 6. He says, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well... Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. God says, Cain, what is there to be angry about here? You failed, yes, but if you succeed, I will accept you. And implicit in that statement is the promise that Cain could succeed. It was within his ability to course correct and to do the right thing. God had not given him some impossible task. And another important point, that this offering was not a contest in some way. You know, it's not that neither brother had to win or lose. God, if God had respected Cain's offering, it doesn't mean he would have turned his nose up at Abel's. They were both capable of succeeding in the situation. But Cain doesn't course correct. He gets angry, he stays angry, and he kills Abel in the field. God asks what happened, and Cain gives the iconic response in verse 9. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Of course, God knew exactly what had happened. He sentences Cain to be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and Cain complains that it's not fair in verse 13. He says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. You have to appreciate the audacity of that sentence. Cain had just ended the life of his brother, the very first murder in all of human history, and he tells God, wait a minute, you're not being fair. And that's the recurring theme of Cain's story. Just think about it. Who did he get mad at initially? It was Abel. He was angry at Abel for succeeding. In Cain's eyes, Abel's success made him look bad. It wasn't Cain's fault for falling short. It was Abel's success that made him look bad. It was his fault for getting it right. When God asks where Abel is, Cain deflects again. I don't know. It's not my job to know. I'm not my brother's keeper. 
And when Cain is punished, the only thought he expresses is anger over how much he's going to be affected. It's too much for me to bear. Never once in this story does Cain say, you know what, you're right, I messed up. How do I fix things? Never once does he say, I don't know what I was thinking and I am so sorry. Cain never accepts the blame for anything. He points the finger at everyone else, at anyone else. It's never Cain's fault. And I believe that's where the way of Cain begins. I think the way of Cain begins when we reject responsibility for our actions and continually see ourselves as the victims. Again, the, the way of Cain begins when we reject responsibility for our actions and continually see ourselves as the victims. We couple that with anger, and that's a road that can lead us to commit something as atrocious as murder. But even if it doesn't take us to that specific sin, it's still a road that takes us away from God. If we can't look at ourselves honestly, if we can't admit when we failed and done wrong, then we can't repent. If we can't repent, we can't be forgiven. And if we can't be forgiven, what future do we have with God? Let's turn to 1 John. First John in chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 8 of 1 John 1. John writes, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, two chapters later, in 1 John chapter 3, in verse 11, 1 John 3 and verse 11, John writes, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. When we make everyone else the villain of our story, it makes it easy to hate our brother and we cannot afford to go down that road. So what's the alternative? If we want to avoid the way of Cain, whose book should we take a page from? Well, we should be like Abel. Now, Abel is an interesting character in the Bible because we know so little about him. And yet, at the same time, God tells us everything we need to know about him. Turn to Hebrews 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We know that what Abel did was right. Whatever God's expectations for that offering were, Abel took the time, he took the effort to do what God wanted him to do, and he did it the way that God wanted him to do it. We know that in verse 4 of Hebrews 11, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. In the pages of Genesis, Abel doesn't have much to say, but his blood has been delivering a message for thousands of years. Do what's right. It won't always make you popular or well-liked. It might make you enemies with people who want to ruin your life. Do the right thing anyway, because the other people don't matter. 
Our relationship with God is what matters, and Abel's relationship with God was right where it needed to be. So let's move on to Balaam in Numbers chapter 22. That's where we'll find his story. Numbers chapter 22. Now, for context here, Israel is making its way along the border of the promised land, uh, toward the border of the promised land, excuse me. The nations around them are terrified because here's this ragtag band of escaped slaves who are growing in number and strength, and they've just chewed through the armies of the kings of the Amorites and of Bashan, and now they're camping here in the plains of Moab. So Balak, the king of the Moabites, is, is terrified. The Bible says that he is sick with dread. He's sure that his people are next. So he sends for Balaam the diviner in verse 5 of Numbers 22. He says, look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and they are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. That's our introduction to Balaam. Not only is he known for handing out blessings and cursings, but he's known for being right about those blessings and cursings. He has a reputation for that. I have so many questions about Balaam, and the answer to most of those questions are we don't know. So why were those blessings and cursings accurate? We don't know. Why does he seem to have an existing relationship with God, even though he clearly leans heavily on sorcery and divination? We don't know. How did he even find out about God? We don't know, we don't know, we don't know. But here he is. Balak sends princes as messengers to Balaam, and they're bringing money to pay for his services. And Balaam says, okay, stay here for the night. And he says that Yahweh, the eternal, he uses the actual name of God here, will tell me what to do next. God does show up, and he says in no uncertain terms, in verse 12, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Case closed. God is blessing them. Don't even think about cursing them. Don't even think about going out there to take a look. It's off the table. Balaam's response to the princes in verse 13 is an interesting one. He says, go back to your land for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. It's very begrudging. I can't go with you. God won't let me go with you. Almost as if he was saying, I can't, but I really, really wish I could go do that. So Balak sends another group a fancier, more important princes, promising even more honor and riches if Balaam will come and curse Israel. Again, there's an interesting response from Balaam in verse 18. He says, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Balaam refers to Yahweh my God. But in the same breath, he seems to be saying, Look, my hands are tied. I can't do anything if God won't let me but don't let that stop you from offering a little more, hint, hint. And so Balaam sends them all away because God already gave a very clear, very definitive answer with no room for exceptions. (laughs) No, wait, no, he doesn't. (laughs) He tells the second group of princes to spend the night so he can hear what God has to say, but he already knows what God has to say. By this point, it's pretty clear that Balaam is very, very interested in the payment that Balak is offering. He wants that money. And this time, God tells him to go with the men if they come to call him. And yet in verse 21, Balaam gets up, saddles his donkey, and heads out. There's no indication that the men ever came to call on him. And God, at this point, is ready to kill Balaam. 
Three times, Balaam's donkey sees the angel of the Lord blocking the way with a sword in his hand. Three times, that donkey tries her absolute best to go anywhere else. She leaves the road, she backs into a wall, and finally she just lays down defeated. And three times, Balaam strikes her in anger. And then God lets the donkey talk. And again, I just, I have so many questions about Balaam, because if a donkey turns around and talks to me, I'm going to be panicking internally a little bit. But Balaam's donkey talks to him, and no problem, Balaam answers right back. What did this man's daily life even look like? (laughs) So starting in verse 28, the donkey basically says, hey, why are you hitting me? When have I ever been a difficult donkey? Do you think I'm doing this for fun? And around that time, God opens Balaam's eyes to see the angel of the Lord. Balaam gives a pretty pathetic apology in verse 34, and he continues on to see Balak, and he reminds Balak in verse 38, look, I can only say the words that God gives me to say. So to summarize the next two chapters, God uses Balaam to bless Israel four times. Balak is furious, and at the end of chapter 24, Balaam and Balak part ways. That seems to be the end of uh, Balaam's story, except it's not. In chapter 25 of Numbers, the men of Israel end up committing harlotry with the women of Moab, sacrificing to the false gods of Moab. God is angry with Israel, and he sends a plague to destroy them. It only stops when Phinehas, the son of the high priest, drives a spear through an Israelite man and a Moabite woman who are flaunting their illicit relationship in front of the entire congregation. 24,000 Israelites died in that plague. What does that have to do with Balaam? You might already know the answer, but it's tucked away in the book of Revelation of all places. Keep your finger here if you'd like to turn to Revelation 2, verse 14. We're just going to read a single verse there. Revelation 2, verse 14. Jesus tells the church of Pergamos, You have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. The Moabite women in chapter 25 were not some random coincidence. They're not some random event that happened to Israel. Balaam wanted his money. Even when he saw that God was determined to bless Israel, he taught Balak a trick. You know, God might not curse Israel, but he would punish them if they disobeyed him. And so Balak put a stumbling block, a temptation, before Israel, hoping that Israel would set itself at odds with God. And it worked. And that is the end of Balaam's story. Except it still isn't. Because after, 25, after chapter 25, we get into laws and offerings and vows and inheritances, and it's very easy to miss one important part of Balaam's story. In Numbers chapter 31, six chapters later after 25, in Numbers chapter 31, verse 1, God tells Moses to take vengeance on the Midianites for the children of Israel. And so Moses sends 12,000 men into battle. In verse 6, We see that Phinehas, who stopped the plague, is leading the charge, and they decimate the Midianites. Look at the end of verse 8. One short little verse. It says, Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed with the sword. Now, if Balaam managed to get his hands on any of Balak's riches, he sure didn't get to enjoy them for very long. There's a certain poetic justice that Phinehas, who ended the plague, was leading the troops that put an end to the mastermind behind the plague as well. So what exactly was Jude warning us about when it comes to Balaam? What was the error or delusion of Balaam for profit? For that, we can turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. 
Over and over again, Balaam was focused on what God would not let him do, on the riches that God would not let him have. In 2 Peter 2, in verse 15, Peter wrote that Balaam, the son of Beor, says that he loved the wages of unrighteousness. He was focused on the wealth and the honor that Balak was promising him. He tried to play both sides. He tried to get as close as he could to the things that God said not to touch. But ultimately, he poured himself out into this sinful delusion that he could cheat God and get away with it. And with that in mind, I would submit to you that the error of Balaam begins when greed prompts us to search for loopholes to circumvent God's instructions. The error of Balaam begins when greed prompts us to search for loopholes to circumvent God's instructions. Now, I don't think this story translates one-to-one. I don't think any of us are ever going to have the desire or the opportunity to tempt an entire nation into harlotry and idolatry, but we can still be tempted by the same spiritual principle that was behind the delusion of Balaam. We can still be tempted to straddle the line and see just how close God will let us get to the things he says not to touch, to the things he's forbidden. We can still try to find the loopholes to get what we want when God has clearly shut the door. Now, when we looked at Cain, we saw that Abel gave us a better example of who to follow. With Balaam, we have a better example as well. The donkey. Be the donkey. Now, if you're reading out of the King James Version and your Bible uses a different word for donkey, then interpret that however you will. In all seriousness, though, Balaam's donkey did exactly what Balaam failed to do. The donkey could see God standing in her way, and then, <clears throat> and when that happened, she did the smart thing and she turned around. She didn't see how close she could get to the angel of the Lord with a sword in his hand. She changed course, she backed up, and when all else failed, she got down on the ground and laid down. Balaam didn't do any of those things. And not just on the road, from the beginning of the story, Balaam couldn't see, or more accurately, he refused to see how God was standing against him. He was so fueled by his own desires that he blinded himself to God's clear instructions. Hopefully you've still got your Bible open to 2 Peter 2, verse 15. Let's read just a little bit more there. <clears throat> this section of 2 Peter is actually extremely similar to Jude's letter. In verse 14, Peter's talking about those who have eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. In this case, we all need to be the dumb donkey. We need to be willing to stop and evaluate where God wants us to be, and just as importantly, where he doesn't want us to be. If we see our plans are in conflict, on conflict with his, we need to be willing to change our direction and not try to find a way around his roadblocks. Most of all, we need to trust that anything God blocks off is something we, better not have, we, we are better off not having in our lives in the first place. Okay, so finally, we come to Korah. Numbers chapter 16. Numbers 16. And this is actually a story, you'll notice, that happens before Balaam. So we're a bit out of order chronologically. 
And narratively, this is not long after the Israelites refused to go up and conquer the promised land. As a result, God had sentenced them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. The current unfaithful generation was going to die off. The next generation would have the opportunity to claim the promises that their parents had rejected. And that's the backdrop for Korah's rebellion. We're first introduced to Korah in Numbers chapter 16, verse 1, as Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. Now, if you're like me, uh, whenever you read anything that remotely sounds like a genealogy, your eyes start to glaze over and you have to fight the urge to pass out. But this is important, and we're going to come back to it in just a minute. So Korah shows up with Dathan and Abiram and 250 men to tell Moses in ver- Moses and Aaron in verse 3, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the congregation of the Lord? There's a lot to unpack in those two sentences. But first, let's grab some context back in Numbers chapter 4. Numbers in the fourth chapter. Now, before Israel turned its back on God, before Israel turned its back on entering the promised land, God assigned special duties to the tribe of Levi. Levi, the actual son of Jacob, not the tribe, had three sons. He had Kohath, Gershon, and Merari. And each of those three lines, the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merarites, were in charge of a different aspect of God's tabernacle. The Merarites were in charge of physically taking apart and reassembling the tabernacle every time the camp of Israel moved. But before they could do that, the Gershonites had to come in and take care of all the coverings, the curtains, and the screens of the tabernacle. And before they could do that, the Kohathites had to come in and remove the holy things, the Ark of the Covenant, the golden lampstand, the table of showbread, and the golden altar of incense. But before they could do that, the sons of Aaron had to come in and cover up all the holy things. These objects resided in the holy place and the holy of holies, locations that only the priests and the high priests, respectively, were allowed to go. The duty of the priesthood belonged exclusively to Aaron and his sons. In verses 15 and 20, God reiterates that if the priests don't cover the holy things, if the sons of Kohath touch or even look at these holy things, they will die. Remember the genealogy earlier? Korah was the son of Izhar, the son of, uh, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath. He was a Kohathite. His job, the job that God had assigned to him, was helping to carry the holy things from location to location. But he wasn't allowed to touch or even look at them. That was somebody else's job. He was a Levite, not a priest. So let's look at uh, Korah's lineage a little closer. The son of Izhar, the son of Kohath. Let's remember that as we move forward in uh, Exodus chapter 6. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 6, where we're going to find, you guessed it, another genealogy. Exodus 6 and verse 16 reminds us of the three sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Now let's zoom in on Kohath for just a second because Korah was a Kohathite. In verse 18, we see that the sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uzziel. Okay, so we know that Korah was a son of Izhar, which makes Amram, Hebron, and Uzziel his uncles. And the most important thing to take away from here is that Uncle Uzziel would have been really hard to say. (laughs) The other important thing to take away from this is in verse 20. It says, now Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, as wife, and that's super gross, and we're not going to think too much about it, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. Aaron 
and Moses were Korah's cousins. His cousins. They were right beside each other on the family tree. And yet Moses was the one who got to live like a prince in Egypt. Moses was the one who got to tell Israel what to do and when to do it. And Aaron was the one who got to be the high priest. Aaron's family got to go inside the holy place and see the holy things. Korah, the cousin, was stuck outside. And that must have gnawed at him. After Israel's failed invasion of the promised land, after he discovered that he would be hauling the holy things around the wilderness until he died, he decided to challenge Moses and Aaron. Let's go back to Numbers chapter 16. Numbers 16. Remember what he said in verse 4? He said, you, Moses and Aaron, take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? In other words, he was saying, Moses, Aaron, any one of us could be doing your jobs. You're not so very special. The rest of us deserve a turn at the helm, too. We deserve to be making some of these decisions that you've taken for yourself. Now, remember, there were 250 men with Korah. That's a big group on its own. These weren't just a random group of angry people. Verse 2 says that they were leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. How did they all get to be there at that moment in time? wasn't a coincidence. And I guarantee it wasn't something they decided on the spur of the moment, five minutes before approaching Moses and Aaron. 250 leaders. This was organized. There were conversations. There were complaints. Remember, the word for rebellion in Jude means a speaking against. And there was a lot of that going on here. How long were these men grumbling and complaining, simmering in frustration before they made their grab for power? Moses replies in verse 7, he says, You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. In verse 9, he asks, Is it a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to serve them, that he has brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi with you? And are you seeking the priesthood also? He's saying, Hey, whoa. You are forgetting that you actually have something incredibly special here. You're taking it for granted. You're trying to grab what you think is the next rung of the ladder. <clears throat> then he offers them perspective. He says, therefore, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram weren't factoring God into this equation. They saw Moses and Aaron as men who had taken control of their own accord, who had seized power so that they could tell everyone else what to do. Dathan and Abiram accuse Moses even more directly. In verse 13, they say, Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey, Egypt, to kill us in the wilderness, that you should keep acting like a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritances of fields and vineyards. It was Moses' fault. It's your fault, Moses, they're saying. You dragged us out of Egypt, where things were absolutely wonderful, by the way, so that you could be in charge. And you have failed to give us the land that you have promised us. Again, the audacity, the sheer audacity of everything about that. We won't spend much time looking at what happens next except to say that God made it very clear that he was the one making the decisions. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram are swallowed by the earth in verse 32, and the 250 leaders are incinerated by fire 
in verse 35. And the whole congregation learns an important lesson. And no one ever challenges Moses ever again. No, wait, they don't. The congregation doesn't learn anything because the next day, the very next day, in verse 41, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. There's another plague. 14,700 people die. Moses and Aaron have to beg God on two separate occasions not to destroy the entire nation of Israel and start over with Moses. The roots of rebellion of Korah ran deep. But where did it start? The rebellion, the speaking against, the gainsaying of Korah begins when we challenge God by deciding that we know better. Again, the rebellion of Korah begins when we challenge God by deciding that we know better better. Korah didn't believe he was challenging God. He thought he was challenging a man. But by challenging God's decisions and refusing to yield, he sealed his fate and he perished. So who should we be more like instead? Should we be like Moses? I think Moses is a great role model, but the whole rebellion stemmed from Korah wanting to be in Moses' position. I think when we're trying to avoid Korah's tragic ending, we should, instead to be, we should instead aim to be like the sons of Korah. Let's jump ahead to Numbers chapter 26. Hope you didn't think we were done with the genealogies, because we're not. But we're here for a quick footnote this time in Numbers chapter 26. During the second census of Israel, there's a note about how Dathan and Abiram and Korah were swallowed by the earth. And then here in verse 11 of Numbers chapter 26, we have this passing comment. It says, nevertheless, the children of Korah didn't die. Korah's line continued on. And we don't hear much about them, and I would argue that that's part of the point. Unlike Korah, they did their job. For generations, they did the job that God had given them without making a scene, without complaining, quietly and in the background. They do show up from time to time, though. Turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 6. First Chronicles chapter 6. When David sets up the temple, we're introduced to some of the musicians who served there. In verse 33 of 1 Chronicles chapter 6, and I promise this is my very last genealogy for today, it says that the sons of, Co- <clears throat> the, sons of the Kohathites were Haman the singer. We get a huge chunk of family tree here, uh, but jump ahead to the tail end of it in verse 37. It says, the son of Tehath, the son of Asir, the son of, of Abiasaph, the son of Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, the son of Israel. Haman was a descendant, a son of Korah. And if you look back at verse 33, you'll see that he was also the grandson of Samuel, the last judge of Israel. Samuel was a son of Korah as well. Now, Korah wasn't happy with his position, but God used others in that same exact position to do important things in Israel. The sons of Korah are responsible for at least 11 of our Psalms. And there's one that I find particularly beautiful once we know the backstory here. Let's turn to Psalm chapter, let's turn to the Psalm 84, the 84th Psalm. Psalm 84 was written by the sons of Korah. And in verse 1 we read, How lovely 
is your tabernacle, O Lord God of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out to the living God. Jumping down to verse 10, we read, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. That is such a beautiful sentiment. I would trade a thousand days of my life, three years, almost three years, for a single day serving as a doorkeeper in the house of my God. The sons of Korah understood that it's not always about what job you're capable of doing. It's about the job that God gives you to do. The Kohathites could have done the Merarites' job. The sons of Aaron could have done the Gershonites' job. We don't always know why God puts us or doesn't put us in certain positions. But the sons of Korah trusted that God had given them their job for a reason. When we trust God with that, we can lean into whatever role he does give us. And we can ask ourselves, what's the most good I can do within the boundaries that God has given me? What mattered to the sons of Korah and what needs to matter to us as well is using every opportunity at our disposal to serve at and dwell in the courts of the living God. So let's recap. Cain murdered his brother out of anger. The way of Cain is marked by rejecting responsibility and continually seeing ourselves as the victim. Balaam sabotaged an entire nation out of greed. The error of Balaam is marked by searching for loopholes to get around God's instructions. And Korah challenged God out of pride and arrogance. The rebellion of Korah is marked by challenging God's decisions and deciding that we know best. Now, if that sounds familiar, it should. Anger, greed, pride. Rejecting responsibility, searching for loopholes, challenging God. That's not just the path of Cain, Balaam, and Korah. That's the path of Satan, the devil. It's no wonder that Jude spoke so strongly against it, and it's no wonder that we need to be on guard against it. The danger of this road is that it's so easy to travel in little steps. Not all at once. A little greed. A little anger. A little pride. It builds, and it builds, and it builds. We walk. We rush. We perish. Instead, we need to make the conscious effort to be we need to make the conscious effort to walk a different path. The one walked by Abel, Balaam's donkey, and the sons of Korah. When we trust God to guide us, we end up with a very different outcome than they did. Now, I mentioned that Jude is not a very encouraging or uplifting letter, and I suspect that by delving into this one verse for 45 minutes, most of this message hasn't felt particularly uplifting or encouraging either. But what I love about Jude is the ending. Let's turn back there. In verse 20, I believe this is where Mr. Frank's pointed us towards as well. In verse 20, Jude offers encouragement. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. You don't have to walk where Cain walked. You don't have to rush where Balaam rushed. And you don't have to perish where Korah perished. If we are willing to contend earnestly for the faith that God delivered to us, to build ourselves up on that most holy faith, we have a far better future ahead of us. In verse 24, Jude closes with this, and I will too. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless 
before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.